Well, hey, great to see everyone here. Um, this is the time we uh, move into now uh, sharing a message from God's Word. Um, God's Word is powerful. Um, you know, it's been compared to a lion. You can let a lion out of a cage. It doesn't need to defend itself. It just kind of is a lion. <laughs> and God's Word is like that, that... Um, you know, uh, and I'm actually saying this as someone who has spent a lot of time studying apologetics um, and, and other things that are meant to defend the claims of Christianity. But I just also want to say the word of God itself is God's power in verbal form. And so even just looking at the, this book tonight, looking at the Bible, um, the God is at work in that. So I just want to, I want to share that with you just so that you can uh, approach this time just expecting to encounter God through his word. Because that's, that's what this is all about. Uh, you know, as you might know that for the last couple of weeks, we haven't really been in any kind of series here. Uh, but as a matter of fact, we sort of have been in a, in a kind of low-key, unintended way. Um, these last couple of weeks, it just has so happened that we've um, been dwelling a little bit on what you might call like the end times. Like just what is going to happen in the future according to scripture. Uh, we had someone a couple of weeks ago pass through who happened to share a message on uh, uh, that theme. And then uh, last week there was an overview that was given on the book of Revelation because that kind of fit into that whole focus as well. Um, and this week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through another passage of scripture that it doesn't so much have to do so much with, uh, you know, future events and that kind of thing. But what this, what this chapter that we're going to look at is about is it's a chapter that helps put together the pieces of God's plan in scripture. So there's a verse in Psalm 25 that says the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. And you know the crazy thing is that if you're a Christian, if you know God through Jesus Christ, then what that means is that God actually has told you stuff about what he's up to. Like it isn't just a whole bunch of random chance happenings in history and we're just kind of along for the ride, not really sure, you know, what tomorrow's going to bring. Like the Bible actually tells you what God is up to. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, he's made known to us the mystery of his will, which is to exalt Jesus, to see all things summed up in Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Jesus and Jesus and Jesus, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And so one of, the, one of the marks of being a believer is that you have this amazing privilege of actually knowing what God's plan for all of history is. And the Bible actually gives you an enormous amount of detail about that. And so I want to I wanna just say to you, like, this is important. Like, you don't want to miss out on, on knowing what Jesus says about what God is doing in human history. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. I hope that as we look at this chapter that we're going to look at, that there will be some light bulbs that will turn on. You know, all that stuff that has been like floating up in your brain from like years of sitting in church or Sunday school, if that was you. You know, I know not everyone necessarily had that kind of upbringing, but you know, I know that there's some people here who, who did. I hope that maybe there'll be some things that connect up tonight that begin to make more sense because as the Bible says, the unfolding of God's words gives light. The unfolding of God's word gives light. So uh, what we're going to do tonight is look at a chapter in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. And this is the famous chapter where Jesus begins to speak to the people in parables. And uh, he speaks to them in parables about the kingdom of God. That's the focus tonight is the kingdom of God. What does that mean? How, how does that work? You know, we throw the term kingdom around if you're in kind of a Christian world, all, you know, that, that word is used all the time. But what does the Bible actually say about that? So uh, what we're going to do tonight, we're going to look at Matthew 13. We're going to look at what Jesus says in these parables of the kingdom. 
And what we're going to find out is not only the nature of the kingdom of God, but also a key requirement for entering the kingdom of God. You know, it doesn't do any good to know about the kingdom of God without knowing how to enter the kingdom of God. And if you remember in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, Jesus jumps right to the heart of the issue and he says, Nicodemus, the reason you're really here is you want to know how do you enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus' answer to Nicodemus is, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been born again, unless you've actually had a, a conversion experience of, of, of repenting of sin and believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's how you enter the kingdom. So we're going to look at those things too. And uh, we're also going to find that, that this, this thing, this thing that Jesus says is a requirement for entering the kingdom, is actually a stumbling block for a lot of people. The gospel is offensive. Because the gospel says that we're more sinful than we could have ever thought possible, even as we're more loved than we could have ever possibly believed. You know, I find that like the further along I go in the Christian life, like I just find that, oh my gosh, like I am way worse, way more of a sinner than I could have ever imagined. How could God love someone like me? And that's why there's an offense to the gospel. There's a stumbling stone of the gospel. And we're going to run into that as we look tonight at what Jesus says about the kingdom. So, um, Tonight, this is a talk where if ever there were a talk where you uh, would want to have like an actual physical copy of a Bible in front of you, this would be the talk. And so um, actually, I, uh, I, there's, there's a, a fine gentleman in the back who uh, happens to be uh, renowned throughout the Thrive universe for being a very good carrier of uh, books. Some of you might remember uh, him just demonstrating this talent at the Thrive Talent Show. Uh, Brendan's got a whole stack of Bibles. If you <laughs> would like to um, have one, just stick up a hand and Brendan can get you one. So I'm going to look at this chapter tonight under three headings. Uh, number one, when the king is rejected. Number two, why the king is rejected. And then number three, how to receive the king. Number one, when the king is rejected. Number two, why the king is rejected. And number three, how to receive the king. So what we're going to do to get into that is actually look at this chapter. This is Matthew chapter 13. Uh, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. And uh, to actually get us looking at it, and, and since it is such a long chapter, what I'm going to do tonight is actually ask for a little audience participation. So uh, what I want to do is I want to divide the room into four groups and I'm going to assign each of the four groups one part of our passage. And you'll see those sections up on the screen. And I want to have um, you guys, um, after I read this section, I want to have one representative from that group. Um, this is a little bold, a little brave. So um, just remember, church is not a spectator sport. To actually stand up and give a summary in your own words of just what you would say that that particular part of the passage is about. And then the second thing is, if there's anyone in your group that says, you know, I have like some things that I am, you know, not some details that kind of raised questions for me, you know, I want you to be bold and shout those out too. Like, you know, what does Jesus mean by this? Or what could he mean by that? Okay, so how are we going to do this? If only I had uh, been better at math in school. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. So I think let's make this group one over here, this whole section. You guys, you guys are kind of the biggest block we've got. So let's take maybe like, oh boy. Oh, you know, okay, let's do this. Can we take this row and then actually this row in that section over there? And then like, if you're not in a section, so if you're like over there or like in the back there or standing up back there, then you guys be section two. You guys in this back section, there'd be section three. And then the rest of you guys on this side here, section four, okay? You guys are two. 
Yeah, yeah. So, okay, up on the screen, you're going to see uh, this passage. I'm going to read this for you, uh, section by section tonight. Got the uh, first part of the passage up there. Oh, there we go, section one. Okay. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. Well, all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. So is there a brave representative from group number one that wants to like stand up, take a stab at just, you know, summarizing, paraphrasing in a sentence or two what this section is all about? Yeah, go for it. Just shout it out. Cool, thank you. So, uh, you know, that uh, included a little bit of observation, but also some interpretation of what's in there. But, you know, kind of, yeah, you know, you got some of the basic things in here that this is a, a, a story Jesus tells about a guy who's a farmer. He's scattering some seed. It lands on some different kinds of soil. And some of the plants do well. They actually grow. But then the, uh, some of the other plants get choked out by weeds and by other things. Uh, were there any questions that you guys had while you were looking at that? Well, uh, this must be the section that all the Bible scholars sat in tonight. Uh, we'll move on to section two here. Yeah. Is it talking about salvation or sanctification? Okay, that's a great question. So, like, what does, like, the plant of the seed represent? Okay. So, uh, okay, moving on to the next section here. <laughs> oh, oh, I should say, I, I, I'm not answering these questions now. We're just trying to, like... <laughs> work the room a little. Okay. <laughs> wow, that's above my pay grade, you guys. Okay, so next section. This is chapter 13, verses 10 through 23. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not, under, they do not hear or understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes." 
Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he, te- he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Okay, so group two, it's all you. Any uh, brave person want to summarize what that section's about? We'll go for it. I mean, go for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I this is. I'm not uh, making many comments on this, uh, for now, anyway. Anyone have any questions? Yeah, Michaela Joy. Our parables meant to inspire faith. Okay, okay. Again, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm so sorry, but uh, great question. Is he dealing with salvation? Okay, that's kind of like Emily's question. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, I will eventually, but just in the message. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, one question that I think is a, one that could be raised by this is why does Jesus seem like he's hiding truth from people? He says, like, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven is given to you and not to them. You know, what's with that? Why would Jesus do that? Uh, we'll come back to that. Uh, okay, section three. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, good question there, Rachel. Oh, who is the them that fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah? Okay, I, we're getting down to, like, even the level of, like, pronouns. And, oh, I love this. Okay. Uh, Moving on, though, we got to keep going here for time's sake. Uh, Section 3, verses 24 through 35. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. 
The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Group three. Yeah, so this is like a parables-only passage. No uh, normal, I don't know, what should I, non-parables allowed? Uh, great. Any questions that came out of that? Yeah, Miyoko? <laughs> Okay, yeah, so it uh, sounds like just questions about like kind of what the different elements of the parables represent, yeah. Um, okay, uh, one last section here. This is verses 36 through 52. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. So, Miyoki, he's probably going to answer your question right now here. Uh, he answered... The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And by the way, I'm not totally sure that they fully did. They might have been deceiving themselves there. He said to them, therefore, everyone, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So uh, group four, last group but not least. Anyone uh, want to summarize that?
Oh, here goes uh, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Awesome. Uh, any any questions you guys want to throw out? Anything that made your your brain hurt, made you scratch your head at all? How, okay, how do you know if you're going to be thrown out or kept? Okay, okay, we'll get to that. So, hey, thanks for bearing with me reading through a long passage, but it's so necessary to read through this whole thing because you have to see the details here. You have to actually, like, read the words that Jesus is saying, and we've just done that. And so what I want to do is I want to just, uh, first of all, look at this first heading, when the king is rejected. This is, the, 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 Jesus is the king. And he's the one telling this, uh, the, these parables. And the first thing I want you to notice is that when these parables are, are, are being described, Jesus begins them in a similar way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And in fact, this chapter is so foundational that what I want to do is, 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 before we even really get to uh, the rest of the, what I'm going to share, I want to just give some basic theology of the kingdom. Call it like Kingdom Theology 101. And then I want to apply this a little later on by getting down and dirty and practical. So Kingdom 101, what is that? Like, what are the basics about the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches here? So, so the first thing to do is to actually get a little bit of context. So throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has gone about and he's been announcing the kingdom of God is at hand. And now if you were Jewish, if you were listening to Jesus at that time, you would have hardly needed any explanation of what that meant. Because for time out of mind, the Old Testament had promised the Jews that one day God was going to establish a kingdom for them. The prophet Isaiah had said so. The prophet Daniel had said so. God was going to establish a kingdom for the Jews if only they would receive the king. But when the king finally arrives, the exact opposite takes place. The Jews, the very people who should have welcomed him, rejected him. And Matthew makes that plain. When Jesus begins to demonstrate his kingly authority, the Pharisees and teachers of the law challenge Jesus. So, for example, in, in, uh, in Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, these are the very cities in which Jesus performs his miracles. And it's in those very cities where the people refuse to repent and believe in him. And so, in other words, the more Jesus presents himself to his own people as their king, the more they reject him. And that takes us to our section, and actually starting one chapter back in chapter 12. So in chapters 12 and 13, th this is perhaps the turning point of this entire gospel, because it's in these chapters that the Jews' rejection of Jesus reaches a, a certain climax. So in chapter 12, Jesus has been going about, he's been healing people as usual, and the Pharisees, the Jewish, the, the, the Jewish experts in the law, their resistance continues to ramp up, and it hits a fever pitch in chapter 12. And specifically, I want to show you on the screen, verse 24. When the Pharisees see Jesus heal yet another demon-possessed man, here's how they respond. They say, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, in the time of Jesus, Beelzebub is another name for Satan. So think about this. The Pharisees have just watched Jesus liberate a guy from physical and spiritual bondage. I mean, they've, they've just seen the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' power, Jesus' goodness, Jesus' mercy. And how do they respond to him? They say, oh, Jesus, by the way, we think you're a servant of Satan. 
I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot worse than that. I mean, shy of killing him, which eventually will happen anyway, what greater act of rejection could there be than by literally claiming that Jesus, God in the flesh, is an agent of the devil? And this is their own king that they're talking about. And so it's, it's because of the Jews' monumental rejection of their king that at this exact point, Jesus' ministry undergoes a tectonic shift. So, for example, at the end of chapter 12, for the first time, Jesus begins to distance himself from his own people, saying that his real family are not the ones who are related to him by blood, but it's those who do the will of God. And then, even more crucially, there's chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the very first time in all of Matthew's gospel that Jesus speaks in parables. And the disciples, as we saw, they're puzzled about this. They say, you know, you know we've never heard you speak this way before, Jesus. You know, why, why do you speak to the people in parables? That's chapter 13, verse 10. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, why, why the rhetorical reboot? Why the rhetorical reboot? And in the verses we read, Jesus explains that the reason for speaking in parables is twofold. On the one hand, Jesus reveals that he actually speaks in parables to hide the truth from those like the Pharisees who have already resolved to reject him. And this is made clearest actually in Mark's version of this passage. So this is from Mark chapter 4. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. But on the other hand, Jesus has another purpose for speaking in parables, and that is to reveal the truth to those like his disciples who've received him and who follow him. And this is why you'll notice, for example, if you look at Matthew 13, 36, Jesus speaks to the crowd, it says, in parables, but it's only to the disciples later on inside the house that he explains the meaning of what those parables are about. And so what that means is there's a really clever ambiguity about parables. So, so parables are these simple stories. I mean, they're the kind of stories that you might have heard in Sunday school with a little flannel graph with like the, the, the fuzzy sheep and the, the little furry shepherd. I mean, like the, 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 these really simple stories. They're, they're so simple that a child could understand them. And, you know, they're using like symbols of everyday things like farmers and seeds and soils and sowers. And, and the purpose of them is to illustrate spiritual truth. And the truth is right there. I mean, it's easy to grasp because of how simple the stories are. But at the same time, identifying what those symbols stand for can be mystifying unless Jesus, the master storyteller, gives you clues. And for that reason, in verse 11, Jesus calls his teaching about the kingdom the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Because parables hide truth from those who reject him, but reveal truth to those who accept him. And by the way, like this is something that you see throughout the gospel. So like remember in John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man? And the Pharisees are like trying to interrogate the blind man to figure out like, how did you come to see? You know, who did this? And the blind man, the guy who, the guy who was blind, he, he says, well, you know, this guy healed me. I don't really know much about him, but all I know is that I was once blind and, and now I see. But the Pharisees, like even though the evidence is staring them straight in the face, they still refuse to believe that Jesus is actually God in the flesh, the only one who would have the power to do that miracle. And at the end of that chapter, Jesus says, it's for judgment that I came into the world so that those who, who, who think they can see will not be able to see. So this is a principle that you see all throughout the word of God, that, that 
God gives more light in response to our obedience to the light that he has given us. So that then raises a, a question, though. Jumping back into the chapter. Okay, so Jesus calls these the secrets of the kingdom. What are the king's secrets? What special insights does Jesus reveal here about the kingdom in this critical chapter? So, so the, perhaps the most important secret, if you wanted to say, if you were to use that word, it has to do with what you might call the stages of the kingdom. And by stages, I, I simply mean the different ways the kingdom of God is described or manifested at various points in the unfolding of God's plan. And I want to give you five stages of the kingdom. And they're easy to remember because they all start with P and they'll all be on the screen. So the first thing here is if you were a Jew, you would have already known about the first stage. The first stage was that the kingdom of God was prophesied. And this was a stage of the kingdom that unfolded during the time of the Old Testament prophets. They predicted that a time when God would set up a visible, physical kingdom on earth and that kingdom would never pass away. It would supplant the evil and the abusive kingdoms that were set up by human beings, and it would, it would endure forever and ever. And some of the clearest descriptions of this prophesied kingdom um, you can find in the book of Daniel. He was one of the prophets who spoke of that kingdom. And let me just read you an example from Daniel 2. This is verse 44. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will uh, never be destroyed. <laughs> ever be destroyed. It should say never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. So there you go. Like there's Daniel hundreds of years before Jesus and he's prophesying the coming of God's kingdom. So that's the first stage of the kingdom prophesied. But then Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, there's the kingdom presented, stage two. So Jesus comes on the scene and he offers to the Jewish nation the promised kingdom that, it, that their prophets had told them about. If only they would accept him as the king. And this is why all throughout Matthew's gospel, first from John the Baptist and then later on through the mouth of Jesus himself, there's this announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. In, in, in a sense that the full manifestation of that kingdom is right around the corner. If only Je Jesus' own people would accept him as the king. And it was also at hand in the sense that the kingdom was present in the person of the king himself. But of course, what, what you know if you've read through this account of Jesus' life is that by and large, the Jews reject their own king. And so in Matthew 13, Jesus, in response to being rejected by his own people, begins to describe the kingdom in a way that was different than anything the Jews had been led to expect. So let me look at some examples here. So when you were reading this chapter, you might have noticed that these parables of the kingdom share a number of themes. So for example, four out of the seven deal with growth. So the parable of the sower, it's the story all about how the seed is the word of God and the word of God grows in these different kinds of soil. Uh, the parable of the wheat and the weeds is all about how a good crop grows alongside a bad crop. I mean, in the parables of the mustard seed and of the yeast uh, the kingdom is compared to something very small that grows or spreads an enormous amount. So growth, that's one theme. Uh, you know, another shared theme is this theme of separation. So in both the parables of the wheat and the weeds and of the fishing net, the kingdom of God is compared to a mixture of good and bad that remain intermingled until God separates them. So there's another theme. Now this particular one, this, the one of separation I just mentioned, this would have been particularly weird to you if you were reading this as a Jew because the way that Jesus describes the kingdom here where like good and bad are intermingled would have seemed at odds with Old Testament expectation because 
in the Old Testament, the kingdom was a place where good and bad didn't mix. The coming of the kingdom meant the elimination of anything evil. So, like, remember Daniel's prophecy. He had prophesied the kingdom of God was going to crush all the kingdoms of men, all the powers and institutions and empires that oppose the reign of God. And, of course, I mean, that would only make sense. I mean, like, if, if there really is a kingdom that God will set up, and if that's the manifestation of God's rule, I mean, surely God could and would stomp out anything in his kingdom that opposed him. But here in Matthew 13, did you notice that Jesus describes a kingdom in which evil is still active? So, so remember the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Who is it who sows the weeds? It's Satan. You know, there couldn't be a, a, a more clear demonstration that evil remains alive and well during this stage of the kingdom that Jesus is describing. So what, what's going on here? Like, how, what, what, what is Jesus trying to get across? What's going on here is that Jesus is revealing a secret that wasn't made known in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the ex expectation was, you know, the kingdom would come at once. It would be a kingdom where righteousness reigned, wickedness is cast out. And now Jesus teaches that during the age in which the king is rejected, and that's, by the way, that's the time we're living in right now, where by and large, we live in a world that has rejected Jesus as king. The fullness of that kingdom in, that, in, that, in, in this stage is postponed, and it give, giving way to what you might call a provisional stage of the kingdom that will last until the king returns. And as these parables explain, this provisional stage of the kingdom is characterized by what, by what you might call mixed results. So, for example, you know, think of the parable of the sower. So, so the, the, the word of God, which is represented by the farmer's seed, it gets scattered all over the place, but it produces this decidedly mixed crop. Or, you know, another example, the provisional stage of the kingdom is also mixed in that it's an era in which good and evil, truth and falsehood flourish alongside each other. So you see that in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where it suggests that during this stage of the kingdom, there's going to be a mixture of true and false believers. You know, it says that the, the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom and the weeds represent the son of the evil one. And, and in this parable, both are said to be a part of the kingdom. Both of you were to meet them would probably profess to believe in Christ, but not all who pro profess Christ truly possess Christ. I mean, think, for example, of like in Nazi Germany. That was a, a nation that would have called itself a Christian nation. Was it really a nation full of people who truly knew Jesus? I don't think so. Or, you know, there are plenty of, of people down through history who have been charismatic cult leaders or others who have used Christianity as a cover for evil for their own, to fulfill their own narcissistic ends. Not everyone who professes Christ genuinely possesses Christ. You, maybe you're here tonight and you've grown up all your life thinking like, I just do all these Christian things. But there's no reality to your faith. There's no reality to your life. There's no way that anyone could distinguish you as being a Christian from anyone else out in the world. So, so but, but going back to the parables, I want to show you just a few more examples. Look at the parable of the mustard seed. So in the parable of the mustard seed, a mustard seed, it's very, very small. And it's said here it grows into this enormous tree. And, you know, it would seem that, that Jesus' point is that the kingdom, you know, has these small, inauspicious beginnings. Nevertheless, it's going to grow to this enormous size. And in fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, the image of a tree often represents a vast world-reaching empire. And in fact, over the last 2,000 years, the ideas of Christianity have rapidly spread through wedding itself to the powers of the state. That's a fusion that we call Christendom. 
But since the previous parable is all about good and bad growing together, the context here actually gives you reason to believe that the growth of the mustard seed represents the expansion of a kingdom that's likewise this mixture of both good and evil. So note, for example, the birds are said to come and nest in the tree in verse 32. And in the parable of the sower in verses 4 and 19, the birds are said to represent evil. And if you think about this, like, isn't this exactly what Christendom is? Christendom means the civilization that grew out of Christianity. That, that's where our Western culture has come from. So Christian Rome, Christian Europe, Christian America, you know, all these huge empires. But the question is, has all of this growth that's come from Christianity, but that has been achieved through a marriage of the power of the gospel with the power of the state, has all of that been genuinely Christian? Has all of that been genuinely good? When I was in college, I had a, a Christian history professor who would say that every time the church has tried to marry the culture to gain power, it's the church that is lost. It is the church that has corrupted itself through going after idolatry, going after the, the, the power of this world rather than seeking the power of God. And so while the mustard seed parable, it does foretell the enormous growth of Christianity's influence, I would suggest that I think there can be reason to think that much of this growth is actually false growth. So the secret here that Jesus reveals in this chapter is that there is a stage of the kingdom in which the fullness of the kingdom has been postponed, you might say, or you know, it's, it's given way to a provisional form of the kingdom that was not known in the Old Testament. And the provisional form of the kingdom is marked by shades of gray, this era in which true and false believers, true and false growth, true and false teaching are allowed to intermingle. And, and what's crazy about this is that what that means is that these last 2,000 years are in fact an incredible age of grace, an age in which God, he, he's mercifully forestalled the removal of evil and falsehood so that there would be an opportunity for people to repent and believe in him. I mean, if Jesus were to actually come back right now and weed all of the evil out of this world, I mean, he'd have to be consistent, wouldn't he? I mean, would he just get rid of like the Hitlers and the Stalins and the really, really bad people? You know, or like, wouldn't he also have to get rid of like people who do like lesser things? Like what about people who are thieves or people who have lied or people who have stolen? <laughs> or, I mean, if you were really consistent, wouldn't Jesus have to get rid of us? Because the dividing line between good and evil runs straight through every human heart. There is no one who can say, I am without sin except for Jesus himself. And so these last 2,000 years, this stage of the kingdom has actually been a season of grace and mercy, God allowing an opportunity for people to come to him in repentance and faith. But Jesus says that it's not always going to be that way. If you, if you notice this, Jesus puts a limit on how long this stage of the kingdom will last. In verses 40 and 49, he says there's going to come a time at the end of the age where there will be a separation, when good and evil, truth and falsehood will clearly be seen for what they are and given their just deserts. And that age will begin with the king's glorious return, when Jesus comes again. And he'll reign in righteousness on the earth. And, and, and that day, the king and his kingdom will no longer merely just be like this spiritual thing. It's going to be visible, which is why the fourth stage of the kingdom you might call the physical kingdom. And then the last pages of the Bible tell us that after that time, um, which the, the book of Revelation describes as a period of a thousand years, it'll give way to an eternity of God's perfect rule and reign, where heaven and earth will merge together. God will dwell with his people, and he will be their God, and we will be his people. And so you might call that final fifth stage the perpetual kingdom. 
so you got these five stages here. You've got the pro prophesied, the presented, the provisional, the physical, and the perpetual stages of the kingdom as promised. They all start with P. Uh, you can thank me later. <laughs> I didn't even make these up, so, you know, whatever. But there, there you go. There's a bit of kingdom theology 101. And what that shows you is it shows you the season of human history in which the king is rejected. That's the season we're living in right now. I don't know if you know this, but if you're a Christian here today, you serve a king in exile. You serve a king who's been rejected. If the scorn of the world fell on him, don't you think it'll fall on us as well who are living for him? We know nothing about this in our peacetime, totally, almost entirely unpersecuted America. But man, like if you're bold and you're witness for Christ, you'll encounter this. So we've seen, first of all, when the king is rejected, I want to look quickly now, uh, number two, why? Why is the king rejected? Because what we found out here, we found out there's this whole season in human history, the king's being, being, being rejected, and, and it's this, this kind of period, this mixed kingdom of, of, of good and evil coexisting together. The question is, though, how will, the, how will the separation work? That was one of the questions that was asked. How will the separation work? Because God says that that's going to happen someday. So, 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 what does Jesus say about how the wheat will be separated from the chaff? What does he say about how the good fish will be separated from the bad? Are, you know, is it like the case that the good fish are just like the Jewish people? Are they the religious people? Are they the people who just like Jesus is teaching? The answer is no. The answer isn't any of these because these were the very people who fell away from Jesus and rejected him. The answer is, is that the ones who are received into the kingdom are the ones who have received the king. And if you want proof of that, look no further than the most famous book and uh, verse in the Bible, John 3:16, where Jesus says, "Those who have eternal life, those who are welcomed into the kingdom are those who believe in Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him, whoever trusts in Him, whoever puts the weight of their life on Him, will not perish, but will have eternal life." And by the way, there's a security in that promise. You know, that verse does not say, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have temporary life. You know, just have life for a little while, but then if you, like, mess up, you can lose your salvation, and then, you know, oh, it was just temporary life for you. No, the promise is, like, because of what Jesus has done, like, there, can, there is an assurance there. The word is eternal life. The point in all this, though, is that it's those who have received the king who receive the kingdom. You can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And yet, if this is so, why is it that so many reject the king? I mean, if what the Bible says about the kingdom is true, it's amazing. God's kingdom, I mean, okay, have you ever wondered what would happen if God ran a government? I mean, we've seen a whole lot of examples of bad governments. Uh, no comment on our current government. <laughs> just, I'm just saying, we've seen a lot of bad governments. We've seen a lot of human corruption of power and, and just of humans screwing things up. Like, have you ever wondered, what would it be like if God were in charge? Like, completely and fully, if God ran a government, what would that look like? And that's what the kingdom of God is. And we see the beginnings of that spilling over right now. I mean, like, God's kingdom, you can even see in this day and age, it challenges power and corruption. It reaches out to those on the margins. It welcomes the hurting and the broken. And, and most people in our world would say, oh, I love all those things. Those are great. I want to see, see power challenged. I want to see the marginalized reached out to. The thing is, it's possible to love the stuff of God's kingdom and yet still reject God's king. Why is that? Why is that? 
I want to suggest to you a one-word answer. And the one-word answer is the word idolatry. It's the word idolatry. And, and the reason you might not have thought I was going to say that is because, you know, you think of idols, you think of oh, these big gold statues or wood statues and you bow down to them. And that, that's, that, 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 is, uh, that is true. That's what an idol can be. But an idol is simply anything that's good that we allow to become a God thing, a good thing become a God thing. And, and I'm going to read you just one way that this has been defined by someone. So uh, someone says here, idolatry is not, may not evoke explicit denials of God's existence or character. It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. So that's why uh, John Calvin was famous for saying man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. What John Calvin meant, he was right. What he meant is that human beings are worshipers. That, you know, even if you're non-religious, if you're like, I'm not a religious person, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Well, like every day, no matter who you are, we all look to things for, for a sense of significance or a sense of security. And whatever that thing is, you are worshiping at its altar. And you could be worshiping at the altar of wealth. It could be worshiping at the altar of marriage, of family, of career. It could be power, pleasure, status, approval, whatever. And none of those things, it's not like it's bad in itself. But when you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing, then you've created an idol. And did you know that even the kingdom of God can be an idol? And in fact, this idol was one of the biggest reasons why the Jewish people rejected Jesus in their day. Because to them, the kingdom of God meant kicking out the Romans, reestablishing the Jewish nation, so long as Jesus was a king who would do those things they wanted, you know, kick out the Romans, establish Israel as a nation, well, then they'd receive him. Or as long as Jesus was a king who performed miracles and healed diseases, fed the hungry, they'd receive him. You know, as long as they could control Jesus, as long as they could be king and Jesus could just be the puppet king, as long as they were on the throne rather than Jesus on the throne, well, then they'd receive him. But when Jesus came to suffer and to die, not a part of their agenda. They could no longer accessorize him to their own, their own things. And so they reject him. And man, you know, wouldn't it just be nice if we didn't have that problem anymore? You know, wouldn't it just be great if, uh, you know, we weren't actually guilty of the exact same thing? We're guilty of the exact same thing. <laughs> it's possible to accessorize Jesus to all kinds of stuff. And, uh, you know, the, the, I, I just love this. Let me, this is a sample of, of what this can look like. This is from a, a blogger. And he, what he does, he just runs through all kinds of Jesus idols that we invent in our own image. Okay, so listen to this. This is, okay, again, this is not meant to be political here. I'm, I'm going I'm to poke fun at both sides. So there's Republican Jesus, who's against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heal our past, tell us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. David, this one's for you. There's touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's good example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And the list can go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And then there's Jesus Christ, who's not just another man, who's not just another teacher. He is God in the flesh. 
He, he is the greater son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, who's come to be the redemption of, of all human history. That's the real Jesus. And you can't invite someone like that into your life just to be your personal assistant. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he is Lord. You cannot accessorize him to other things. I have idolized other things other than Jesus. All of us have idolized things other than Jesus. We're no different than the people of Jesus' day. We want the kingdom without the king. And that is why the king is rejected. We want the blessings of Christianity without Christ because we, can't, we don't want to accessorize Jesus. We want to accessorize Jesus to the, the agendas that we have. And I was thinking to myself earlier tonight, I can't think of another example in the Bible where God says that it's good for us to have control unless it's self-control. I mean, you remember in the book of Daniel in the chapter 3 where King Nebuchadnezzar has these three guys who refuse to bow down and worship his big statue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? And when he finds out about this, he gets so mad and so angry. You know, he commands the fiery furnace that they're going to get thrown in to be heated seven times higher than, uh, than it was. He actually, he kills some of his own guys that way. I mean, you ever, ever realize, like, Nebuchadnezzar, he was the most powerful guy on the face of the earth. He had absolute power. He can control everything except himself. He couldn't even control his own anger. Man, we just want control. We just want to be in control, be in charge, be God, rather than to surrender control to Jesus and experience the freedom of letting him be in charge. It's so good to let Jesus be in charge. It's so good to surrender control. And maybe tonight you need to do that in some way. Uh, but just one last thing. Um, looked at when the king's rejected, looked at why the king's rejected. Last thing of all, the critical thing, how do you receive the king? How do you receive the king? You know, you, we, you can't have the benefits of the kingdom without bowing the knee to the king. And the natural orientation of the human heart is to reject the king and turn to idols. So the question is, what on earth can you do to actually receive Jesus? You know, what will actually cure our hearts to welcome Jesus onto his rightful throne um, in our lives? And I'll tell you one thing you can't do. One thing you can't do to cure your heart is you can't cure your heart by just changing your behavior. And that's because behind every behavior, there's a desire. I mean, let's say that your idol is other people's approval. Like, you live for other people liking you. Like, you wither and melt if people reject you or think you're not cool or whatever. I, you know, I'm not very cool, and so I, you know, I've dealt with this. I have empathy for you, whatever. Um, and, I mean, like, out of that if, you, if that, if that's your idol, if people's approval is your idol, there can be so many behaviors, that, bad behaviors that come out of that. You know, like, you can be a people pleaser. You can worship romantic relationships. You can become a narcissistic navel gazer. And, and if you deal with that idol by weeding out surface-level behaviors, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. Because the whole root system of desires is what fuels those behaviors. So, okay, I'm going to read you another thing here. This is about desire. Listen to this. So this guy says, desire is at the helm of our lives. It determines our behavior. Listen to this. We always do what we want to do. The question is, which of our desires is strongest at any given moment? An alcoholic may desire or want a drink, but refrains from having one. It looks as if he's not doing what he wants. But what has happened is, is that another desire, perhaps the desire to avoid shame or losing his family, has trumped the desire for a drink. 
He's still doing what he wants. It's just that the desire for a drink is no longer his biggest desire. It's like so simple, right? It's just like you do what you want. We always do what we want. The question is, what do you want? <laughs> so you can't change the desires of your heart by just changing your behavior. You can only change your behavior by changing the desires of your heart. And how do you do that? <laughs> I mean, none of our hearts desire the king. <laughs> so, how, so how do you do that? One of God's promises is that the way that this would happen is not through us, but it's through Jesus. That Jesus himself was going to be the one to take care of it. Because way, way, way back in the Old Testament, God promised that when the Messiah came and when he established a new covenant, a new form of relationship with, with human, human beings, that he was going to remove out of us our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that would respond to him in love. And that's what Jesus achieved through his death and resurrection. When Jesus, he, he climbed the hill that he himself had created to be nailed to a cross made out of wood that he himself had fashioned. <laughs> I mean, he was plunged into utter separation, utter darkness, and was utterly crushed so that we might have a new heart. And it's a heart that desires God rather than despises God. And if you're a Christian, I just want to say that heart is your inheritance. You can claim that. You can experience that. And the way to activate that is to look at Jesus. There's a guy who once said, you know, a, a glance at Christ can save, but it's the gazing at Christ that sanctifies. And if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm here and I've just been like this kind of Christian, this, this guy who, guy or gal that's just kind of been going through the motions, I need to have my heart fall in love with Jesus again. Like, I've forgotten my first love. You know what you can't do to fix that is you can't just like say, oh, you know, beat yourself up. Oh, just love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus. You can't love God any more than you already do. The only way to love God more is to look at Jesus and his love for you and realize, oh my gosh, like, I want nothing more than him. I want nothing more than him. So the way to get in touch with the new heart is to gaze at the, at the one who gave it to you. And when you do that and realize that there's nothing more beautiful in this world than Jesus, there's nothing more desirable in this world than Jesus, then, oh my goodness, like, do you know what will happen to your whole life, desires, behaviors, and everything? This is, the, is, 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 is how we come to see Jesus for who he really is. And when we do that through repentance faith, that's how we receive the king. So, uh, I'm done. The end. Um, we're going to move into a time of small groups now. Devonta, you're, you're doing this. Yeah, okay. I'm giving it to you. Okay. Thanks, you guys.